there was some teenagers that went missing after a dance or a wedding or something. And I just was fascinated by the sounds of helicopters. And I was obsessed with the newspaper every day to find out what happened to these kids. And they had been found uh, a few weeks later and it wasn't actually solved until about 25 years later. And it turned out a prolific serial killer named Edward Wayne Edwards um, is the one that killed him. Hi there. Welcome to the Connecting KC podcast. I'm Rachel Kilmer, also known as Rach the Realtor on the internet, where I love, well, connecting all things KC. I'm a metro area real estate agent, retired sports reporter, and mom, and probably too old to call myself a TikToker, but honestly, that's how we got here. You can learn more at www.rachetherealtorkc.com. But this show is all about introducing you to all of the movers and shakers, interesting people, heartfelt stories, and funny quirks that make this vibrant community home. So let's get right to it with today's episode of Connecting KC. Welcome in. Ooh, I'm excited about today's episode. This is going to be a really interesting topic that I don't know much about. So I want to introduce you guys to Danielle Virch. She is a private investigator and the co-host of the Without Warning podcast. Her journey into the world of criminal investigation began at a young age, sparked by an unsolved serial killer case in her small town. In 2020, Danielle made the bold decision to leave her long-held career and join another investigator full-time. And she dedicated herself to honing her skills by taking various courses, acquiring certifications in forensic interviewing, criminal defense investigation, and private investigation. And throughout her career, Danielle has developed a deep understanding of the significance of this work. She believes that crime has no timeline and investigating is not limited just to a nine-to-five job. She prioritizes responding to every single email, text, voicemail, and acknowledging the importance of providing support to victims' families during their most challenging times. Danielle recognizes the heartbreaking yet rewarding nature of her work and strives to be a voice for those who can no longer speak for themselves. She resides in the Kansas City metro area and travels the country for her work. So Danielle, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Yeah, I'm so excited. So for those of us like me that are basically only familiar with Scooby-Doo in terms of private investigating, can you, what does a private investigator do? What's the scope of your work? What's your day-to-day like? Kind of give us a, a view of the lifestyle that you live here. Oh gosh. Well, every day is different. Uh, it depends on how many cases we're actively working at the time. And, you know, it could be that we're working on a case that's a little bit quiet. We might be waiting to go to court or waiting on depositions. So while we're not actively working that case, we're technically still on it. Um, and then some days we'll work three different cases, depending on if we get witness tips we need to follow up on, um, FOIA requests, which are freedom of information requests. That's really how we get a lot of our information. Um, speaking to the families of the victims that we work for. I don't work as a traditional private investigator. I don't do missing persons. I don't do divorce cases or stalking cases. Uh, what we do is cold case death investigations. So that is, you know, where our focus and our expertise is. Hmm. So are you typically hired by the families of the victims or does it vary? Yes, we're hired by the families. There is a case that we have where we are actually um, hired by the attorney, but we are hired by the families, yes, of the loved ones that they have 
tragically lost. Yeah. And then is it typically like, this is a really technical question, but I'm just curious. Do they pay you like a lump sum of like, this is where, here's your mission, go do this? Or is it like hourly? Or like, how does it usually, how does the employment work usually? That's a great question. There are some cases that, you know, in the past we did pro bono. Um, unfortunately, investigations take a lot of resources. They take a lot of time. They take a lot of energy. They involve traveling over state lines to interview witnesses. They involve hiring expert witnesses. They involve getting things like the Faro technology, which is a machine that can trace a bullet's trajectory to find out, you know, the entry and, and uh, entry and exit wound. So unfortunately, it, investigations are costly. We take a retainer from families and once that retainer kind of gets close to might need more funding, that's up to the family to decide if they want to continue this or if not. I mean, we won't take any money on a case that we don't believe that we can pursue or get a successful outcome on. And what I mean by that is we were working for a family out of Tennessee that they thought that their loved one had possibly been murdered. If we find it suicide, we have to tell the family that. And that's not a comfortable thing to say, but we're also not going to prolong it and take their their money and their resources. So it, it's hard, but usually we take a retainer up front and, you know, when that gets expended, then I have to come up with more. I mean, a good investigation is usually in the six figures. That's a lot of money. And I mean, it makes sense because there's so much like technology and resources that you have to pull into it. But I mean, are there ever like grants or anything, or is this just something that you have to have a certain level of privilege to even be able to pursue for a lost loved one? Do you, you know what I mean? That's actually a great question about the grants. Um, there are some foundations, the clients that we have worked for, aren't part of any of the foundations. Um, I'm not even sure how they go about that. Um, a lot of people have to stop their investigation because they just can't afford it. And that's really, really heartbreaking to have to tell a mother of a victim that this is what it's going to cost and they can't afford it. I mean, we have worked tirelessly for people, um, we bring in a team of people. We bring in other investigators that we're friends with to donate some of their resources, to donate some of their time. And they do that. However, once something goes to trial or goes to court, expert witnesses want to be paid. Attorneys want to be paid. So it's not just paying the investigators. It's paying the whole team of people that really are involved in bringing their case to justice. Yeah, it's so hard. Do you know much about this industry in other countries? Like, is this a thing in other countries or no? I don't. You don't? Okay. I'd just be curious if it's like an, we have a particular need for it because of the way our system is set up or anything, but super question. interesting. Yeah. yeah. We look into that. Thank you. Um. Yeah. Let me know what you find out. <laughs> um. So what kind of licenses you, in your bio, you kind of talked about some of the different certifications you have. Is there like a lot of, um, you know, boards that you have to report to or anything, or is it kind of like each, what's the licensing and like qualification process like for this? 
So there are only five states in the United States that do not require any licensing. Uh, and they're Mississippi, Colorado, Idaho, South Dakota, and one more, one of the M states, I think. Um, the rest of the states do have licensing and regulatory boards. Uh, for instance, I'm licensed in Tennessee and Texas. So we have to apply for an exam. We go through background check with the FBI. We get fingerprinted. We have to have 12 to 24 continuing education credits every other year. Um, there's ethics boards. So there is licensing. So in Kansas and Missouri, you do need, again, to apply for the test. You need to take um, a test. You need to actually have surety insurance or bonded insurance of up to $100,000 in Kansas and $250,000 in Missouri. So that's going to cover liability and workman's comp. However, if you work for an agency, the agency is going to be responsible for those costs and you're just basically an agent investigator for that, that company. Hmm. So interesting. It's actually, that's actually kind of like real estate, <laughs> funny enough. You mentioned this, you kind of touched on this earlier, but how many cases do you typically work at once? We have about almost nine or 10 that we're actively working right now. Some of them are dormant because again, we're waiting to either go to trial or get depositions uh, some of them are just in their infancy, um, but we have about seven or eight regular right now and about 10 total that we've work, been working on for a couple of years. Wow. Yeah. And and is it typically years, not months long investigations? Yeah. So the case that actually got me into this career, I really got involved in its infancy and Jonathan was killed in 2014 and we just went to trial last year. And it was a civil trial of wrongful death because the DA decided not to pursue charges in that case. And so it took, you know, eight years to get to trial. So it took a long time. I was reading about you and I read about the Jonathan Cruz case. It sounds like that was a big part of your early career, but what pulled you into this industry in the first place? So I have been interested in this realm of true crime uh since i was a child i grew up in a small town in wisconsin and there was uh when i was like 10 or 11 years old there was some teenagers that went missing after a dance or a wedding or something and i just was fascinated by the sounds of helicopters and i was obsessed with the newspaper every day to find out what happened to these kids and they had been found uh, a few weeks later, and it wasn't actually solved until about 25 years later. And it turned out a prolific serial killer named Edward Wayne Edwards um, is the one that killed him. His daughter actually turned him in, and it was known as the Sweetheart Murders. His daughter turned him in, and he was responsible for many, many crimes across the country. He was a traveling salesman. The family moved a lot. So I was always interested in it from that standpoint. Then I'm 20 years old and a girl goes missing from the mall that I worked at. You know, so there, there were just these things along the way that always kind of grabbed my attention. Um, I lived in Milwaukee when Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, was there and, and, and the Stephen Airbert care. So there's been some famous cases in Wisconsin that I was really familiar with. So about five years ago, I went to 
a convention and Sheila Waisaki um, is a PI and she was presenting one of her cases there during one of the sessions. So I went to the session and she presented the Jonathan Cruz case and she allowed a lot of us what she calls crowdsourcing. She gathers people from all different backgrounds, not just investigators, not just law enforcement, people like me who are armchair detectives and might have intuition. And she let me kind of volunteer on some cases with her. She presented the Jonathan Cruz case. He had been killed in 2014. This convention was in 2018. They were still fighting to get it into court. Finally went to court last September. It was a wrongful death trial in Texas. And I got to attend the trial and kind of work the case with her over the last five years, getting it to trial. Got a successful verdict for the family um, of $206 million, which is one of the largest civil verdicts in the state of Texas. So just really proud of the work that we did and how far we came. And, you know, I became really close with the family. And there's just nothing like getting success for the loved ones of the victim and his friends were in the in the courtroom and his family and and even some strangers that have helped us along the way they showed up and it just it's very powerful to finally see justice be served it's not a criminal trial the da didn't uh pursue the case but the verdict that we got was just and they found that you know she was liable for jonathan's death Mm, wow that's so cool so how is that with families like i'm sure you get attached to all of them because you're with them in these like most vulnerable moments is there or do you just let yourself go all in and and feel all the feels or do you try to like draw some sort of like emotional boundaries to protect yourself when you're going through these cases that's a great question i mean i try to put on a very strong front but you know again i go back to the trial when that verdict is read and you just can exhale but these families are in my mind every single day i mean when you hug the mother of a victim and they say thank you it's like no thank you because it's really been an honor to bring a voice to jonathan or the other cases that we work so and why cold cases why not just follow the slimy cheating husband or the, you know, other things that seem like they would be less uh, taxing emotionally. What is it that draws you to this particular field? Because victims don't have a voice and cheating spouses do. And it's just not my jam. I just, I want to, again, be a voice to those who no longer can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, are there any areas of this field that you haven't worked in yet that you really do want to like a certain kind of case or a different region, maybe anything like that? Yeah. Region, you know, we don't work cases in the States that we live in because for safety reasons. So I won't work cases in Kansas or Missouri. What was your career prior to becoming a private investigator? And like, did it have anything to do with it or teach you skills that you use now? Or was it a complete like left turn in 2020? You know, it's really fun. I actually worked in optometry for about 20 years. I was an uh, optometric assistant. However, it has kind of segued into a couple of our cases. Um, 
when we do review autopsy reports, there's something called vitreous blood alcohol. So after, you know, the decedent passes away, then you can test their, um, the gel in their eyes, basically the liquid in their eyes. I have a friend who works for an attorney and recently asked me to review a case that they're doing a malpractice case about an ophthalmologist and they couldn't understand what the notes read in the eye exam. So I got to use my eye exam skills while helping her attorney kind of, you know, navigate this whole optometry world. So my worlds collided recently. Yeah, there you go. But you didn't expect that. Um, I also made an entire career change in 2020 as one does the world's crumbling around you. What else do you do, but just launch a new career, you know? That's when I got my real estate license. So it's like, it was just like, everything's going nuts. Just might as well. Right. <laughs> um, so, okay. Last two questions here. Number one, where can people find you? If they're interested in learning more about your work, they're interested in maybe hiring you, where can people find you on the internets? So they can find us on our website, which is Sheila And that's S H E I L A W Y S O C K I. Uh, we have an about section about Sheila, about myself, as far as if you want to pick our brain for an hour, get a consultation, that's all on our website. We have a Patreon page, Patreon slash without warning. We also have a podcast without warning uh, with Sheila Wysock. Cool. Love it. Okay. Very last question. I ask everyone that comes on the show this question. What's a great meal you've had out and about in Kansas City recently? Well, and that's interesting you said that because I am actually new to KC. I have only lived here for two years. We actually, you know, moved here from Arizona. So, of course, I'm going to say Joe's, you know. The Z-Man is my favorite thing. And I don't know if, you know, all of your uh, people that you have on the podcast say that, but I got to have my Z-Man. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's great. It's great for a reason. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, this is a bonus question then. What has, what have you liked? What has surprised you about moving to Kansas City? Well, I'm a Midwestern girl at heart. So I actually um, made my husband move back here. My husband is from here originally. So I wanted to get back into the Midwest and Wisconsin was maybe a little too cold for us. So we compromised and I, we said Kansas City, but it was me pushing him to move back here. So we're really happy we did, you know, back with our family and friends, season tickets to the Chiefs. So what can be better? Living the life, living the life. Love it. <laughs> and a beautiful new airport to travel out of too. For That's right. I for my job. It's, it's great to go through the new one. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for taking the time today. It was so nice to chat and like super interesting. I'm fascinated. So we'll have to do it again sometime. Thank you. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.